Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Dr. Leslie Rule is an ecologist who works across academic disciplines to think about big global problems in a new way. She is the assistant director of the Scowcroft Institute for International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service. That, of course, is located at Texas A&M University. Leslie's focus is creating solutions to reduce conflict and increase conservation and economic development. And she's going to spend some time with us today talking about what that really means. She holds a PhD in ecology from the University of Georgia and served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Ghana, West Africa. Leslie has received numerous awards and commendations for her cross-disciplinary approach, which puts a premium on the power of entrepreneurship and local input to solve problems. Leslie, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to chat with you today. I'm so happy to be here on the campus of the Bush School with you. It's a beautiful campus and it's a beautiful day. I'm glad you're here. Beautiful hot day. Uh, It is Texas. (laughs) It's warm today. (laughs) And I show up in black. Yeah. Not the best color. No, not weather appropriate. Not weather appropriate. So to get right into it, let's talk a bit about your work. It spans a number of different key disciplines, and you're doing this in an effort to combat global conflict. Talk about what what does that mean, and what should we understand about what you're doing? I have just had, I've had a career that's been all, you know, traveling around the world, working on different projects around the world, but really interested in solving problems. And the problem that I've always been most focused on is doing conservation, conservation of wild places, wild creatures. But if you care about wild places and wild creatures, you need to care about people. So I've been really trying to find ways, how do we help people that live next to these wild places and wild things, how do we help those people have really good lives? And so I've been uh, doing some work in Africa when I was in a Peace Corps volunteer, working with hippo conservation, working with four different tribes in Northern Ghana, on how to promote really good livelihoods for people that are living in a a remote area uh, that don't have a lot of other opportunities. And my most recent project has been in Congo, where I've taken a lot of the lessons that I learned when I was in Ghana and from various other projects I've had around the world to work around uh, Virunga National Park and find solutions for people who are living in a conflict zone but also in one of the most biodiverse areas of the planet that houses uh, mountain gorillas, one of the most iconic species on the planet. So I thought it was a really good opportunity to bring all the things that I'd learned from my different projects to work with communities. I found a really good group of people to work with and, and come up with some solutions together. It's so interesting because you put a real premium on entrepreneurship as well which I think is so interesting when you think about solving these problems. We think about really what they are at their core. You know, I have had some friends in my life that were entrepreneurs that I, I admired greatly, but I'd never thought of myself as an entrepreneur and hadn't really thought of how it fit into the world uh, with problem solving. 
I was on a project with a group when I was at the Center on Conflict and Development, also here at Texas A&M, where we were putting in with one of our donors hydropower dams. And the theory of change there was by putting in hydropower dams, that would help provide cheaper opportunities for people, and that would help mitigate conflict. So when I went out and talked to communities, I would say, oh, you're getting you know, electricity. What are you gonna do with that electricity? And the first thing people would say to me is, well, NGOs are gonna come in and give us jobs. Well, if you're in international development, you don't wanna see NGOs hiring people as the solution. That's not really a sustainable solution. The second group of people would say to me, factories are gonna come in. Factories are gonna come in and give us all jobs. And I would look around and say, well, we don't even have a paved road here yet. You know, the electricity is not strong enough to really power a lot of factories. Then the third group of people would say something along the lines of, I want to open a cell phone charging shop. And that resonated with me because I was traveling around this area and looking and talking to people in the villages and seeing all these places where there were like 200 phones lined up, ready to be charged from just one solar panel. And I could see this as being, oh, someone, you know, the people that are interested in this, they see a problem, they want to solve it, and they don't know exactly how to get the resources to do it. So I thought this could be the place where we could inject another project that would help connect economic development to providing job opportunities for people. Finding the people that are most dedicated and interested and motivated in finding solutions and empowering them. So what I did is I went out and I, you know, I'm an ecologist, you know, I'm really good at being in the field and finding creatures and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so I went out to other groups and I said, hey, this is a really good opportunity. I can help make the connections for you to do like a business incubator, something to do with entrepreneurship. And I kept hearing from everyone that, well, there's too much conflict there. No one's going to invest in a conflict zone. Mm. Um, and I sort of felt it was a chicken and egg. Well, we have conflict because there are opportunities. There's no investment. So I started, I found some really good people that I'd been working with on another project at the local university. And I talked to them about this idea and they said, oh, we would like to do this too. So I was able to work with my local counterparts there and then reach across Texas A&M University where we have so many excellent programs going on. I have another friend of mine who works in Peru with indigenous groups. So I was able to bring together all these people to help counsel uh, and provide advice on how we can create our own entrepreneurship program to help, to help these, these people in this community. Talk about, and you alluded to this, mm -hmm. talk about the challenges in working in a conflict zone. I mean, you, you, meant, <laughs> you said, you know, spot on, it's a chicken and egg thing. If you mm -hmm. don't invest, yeah. you're never gonna change it. But in the meantime, there's a high level of risk involved in this work. Talk, talk about some of the challenges that you have encountered. Right. Well, for sure, there's going to be risk. But I'd been working with USAID and seeing all these programs. And I was trying to like turn it on its head a little bit, the way we approached the aid in, in a conflict zone. Because no matter what aid or projects are going in, you're going to have the same problems, yeah. right? You're and going is to have... there infrastructure typically when you, when you go in to do a project? Or are you starting that from scratch? There's limited infrastructure. In, in a lot of the regions, there's problems with conflict, right? Mm -hmm. So having to deal with armed groups, um, dealing with 
corruption issues from government officials, resources, just getting resources there, dealing with crossing borders, bringing in equipment, bringing those kind of things. Those are definitely some of the challenges. But a lot of those challenges are going to be there for other projects as well. So my thought was, in working with the local community members, if we can kind of find ways that we're doing the same kind of investment in the region, but doing it in the entrepreneurs, the people that have the ideas and help them create the solutions and create the businesses, that might be a more sustainable way of, of moving economic development forward in this particular region. Mm-hmm. You know, in a conflict re- region like that, how are projects like this viewed? Well, I've been working with a, a local university and that's been really great, right? So we've been working with people that are already in the community. We've been reaching out and making contacts and working with businesses in the community. It matters because if you don't have that local investment, your solution's not going to last. And that's the other reason that I really want to go to the people that have the ideas, that have already these these projects in place or businesses in place. Here's one of my favorite examples. There's a woman who came to our, we have what we call leopard's lair. I call it shark tank, but it's Congo style, you know, because there, there aren't any sharks in Congo. It's a landlocked country. So having them present their ideas in the three minute spiel. So tr- kind of level that playing field. So they're getting the same treatment that, not the exact same treatment, but trying to make it as level as possible. Someone who's doing Dragon's Den in the UK or Shark Tank in the US, Mm -hmm. Leopard's Lair in Congo. So this woman, she came up and she presented her project on juice, which is passion fruit juice. She had a packaging problem. She didn't have any bottles to put her juice in. So what she did is she went to the local bars, took all the um, Heineken bottles of beer, washed them out, made her own label, made her own lid, and sold her juice in those Heineken bottles. So I appreciated her because she was super creative, you know, looking at solving your own problem, you know, and then it's not a sustainable solution. Heineken, if she gets big, is not gonna really like giving all their bottles to her, but she came up with this really cool solution by herself. So if we can find ways to work with someone like her and promote her and find her other ways of getting packaging, that's the person I want to work with. What is helpful from your perspective as it relates to business investment in these types of projects? I'm really excited about working with businesses because they have all these lessons that they can share with our entrepreneurs. Um, one of the uh, other legs of the project that we've done is have local mentors as well as international mentors. So even if these businesses aren't quite ready to invest in the space, they can invest their knowledge, their experience, and provide that to these entrepreneurs for these entrepreneurs to grow. Mm-hmm. But it's also an excellent opportunity to make connections. My, one of my home run goals for this project is to find some kind of business that we have a business in the US or in Canada, the EU, that they can actually become uh, partners. And so not only is it helping, helping the people that are in, in Congo, but it's helping these businesses that are in other places as well. So it's, you know, the rising tide, right? So everyone is benefiting by having this kind of corporate responsibility. So building up all these other markets that could be profitable in the future, mm-hmm. while still taking in mind there's going to be risk in the, in the upfront, right? And of course, it's a conflict zone. Um, it is a high risk place to put any investment but I think the idea of had about it, it's this high risk, 
but high reward. And as things continue to progress, as soon as we have, we, so we have our first business that had a multi-million dollar investment for solar energy, again, building on how important energy is to increase economic development. And we've done it all through complete legal channels in Congo. Everything regulatory is up to spec. So this is the first example we believe in North Kivu that this has happened. And now we have our other businesses that we're hoping this is their, their example and they can follow it and we can have more businesses go through this and it'll be easier and easier for other businesses to invest and then help be a part of the solution in Congo. This mm -hmm. is a great example of, to use your words, experiential learning. Talk about the impact that these projects have on your students. I love getting inside students' brains and busting their bubble. You know, getting them to think differently about things. Uh, These are graduate level students mm -hmm. primarily. But, and that's one of the things that they're, they've been trained to think in one discipline. And so when you get them together with different disciplines, they get to think about their solutions in different ways. So you get these novel ideas, these novel concepts that can come out of it. And that's really exciting. Uh, so right now we have a, a grant from the School of Innovation here on campus. So we have schools, uh, students from the Bush School, from the Vet School, School of Public Health, Economics, looking at the boom and bust economics of Ebola, actually. So that's the other thing. So we're at the, our particular uh, site, not only do we have conflict, a year ago, year and a half ago now, uh, Ebola hit. So I'm really interested in how the impact of the Ebola response is going to have on those businesses. Interesting. So the students, they hear about it on the news. They read about it online, you know, but they don't have a grasp on what's happening. And they are thinking about it from their own discipline, right? So they're thinking at it from a public health perspective. Oh, we don't want to get Ebola. Uh, if you want to be an aid worker, how do we stop that? But what I want them to do is really understand it from a much more nuanced level. So we have this grant and we're working with students. I'm gonna have them interview different entrepreneurs okay. in different sectors. Do they go there? They're not gonna go there, cause that's a little difficult, okay. but I'm setting up uh, like Skype interviews so they can see each other uh, as long as the connection lasts, but they get a chance to actually talk to someone in Congo who's living in an Ebola zone in a conflict zone and get it asked their own questions. So it brings the reality of the world closer to them instead of it being this scary disease, Ebola, and this weird exotic place, Congo, there's an actual person that they're talking to and they're getting their perspective. And I have other friends that are journalists, um, that are uh, professors at the university, uh, that are just businessmen in town. We're setting up interviews for them to talk to those folks as well. So they really have to think about it. So, and then the students have these little groups. They're looking at the politics. They're looking at communication. How do you communicate about Ebola to people? So one of the things they've heard is there's a lot of mistrust. How do you gain trust with your communication? Having them work through uh, the business side of things. How do you have a business in a volatile environment with conflict and Ebola? So we have all these teams working on doing their literature view. Then we're going to have them together and work on the interdisciplinary teams for doing, I'm calling it a resilience action plan for each of the businesses. 
you're having a public health person, an economics person, uh, a politics person, you know, a policy person, all working together on these solutions for each individual business. And then are, are these served up to these individual entrepreneurs? This is, this is the idea of this particular project. Wow. So I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be a really useful thing because I don't want it to just to be a one way. I don't want the students just to hear everything. I want them to think about it critically and think about how they would help solve this problem for this entrepreneur. You know, and there's lots of, you know, things that, you know, the cultural piece, the, the environmental piece, there's going to be differences and all that, but I'm hoping it's going to be a really meaningful way for the students to learn and for the entrepreneurs in Congo to possibly have something that they could really take forward and use. You literally light up when you talk about your work in this space. What, is, what does this work mean to you? Why is this important to you? Like I said, I love watching the brains of students really open up, you know, bust their bubble. You know, I grew up in this little tiny town and I didn't know 90% of the jobs that are available out there. I had no idea. And I just want to do a little bit of my part to help students understand what impact they can have. And then I love working on the ground in these communities because there's, there's just so many wonderful people out there that maybe weren't lucky enough to be born on the turkey farm in Colorado like I was born in, right? <laughs> you know, they're born into a conflict zone in Congo, but they're still amazing people. How do we make those connections so they can realize their potential, just like I want my students here to realize their potential here? Yeah. Okay, take us from Colorado Turkey Farm <laughs> to, to your work in this space. What, what was it that originally inspired your work? I've always loved animals. I was like the little nerdy forest girl, just wanted to go play looking for snakes and frogs and lizards. I loved horses so much. My mother was like, we cannot afford a horse. So I went and found a, a local horse farm that they let me go in there and scoop, scoop stalls and bale and stack hay for the opportunity to ride horses. And then my dream was actually go to Alaska and study wolves because I wanted to be, you know, in the most remote, amazing Alaska, you know. <laughs> that was the most exotic place I could think of at the time. And I, I went to school on a volleyball and basketball scholarship, and they canceled the scholarships at the last minute up there. So Montana State Northern called me and invited me up there. So they flew me, little old me. They put me on a plane to fly to Montana, which I just felt like a rock star. And uh, so I ended up going to school in Montana State Northern and loved it, had an excellent experience, really uh, supportive, adopt an athlete family up there, and my teammates were really fabulous. But I still had this wanderlust and wanting to understand more about the world, and uh, I got a job at the Baltimore Zoo. So I left Montana for Baltimore. <laughs> so never having lived in a city before, it was quite the culture right. shock. <laughs> I don't know if you've been to Baltimore Zoo, but it's, you know, in the Druid Hill Park in the middle of Baltimore. You know, that was when my bubble started getting burst, you know, really thinking about the world in different ways and having really good friends at the Baltimore Zoo that, you know, I've worked with one of them. Um, he, his name's Dr. Mike Cranfield. He was the vet at the Baltimore Zoo and he went on to become uh, the head of the gorilla doctors based in Rwanda. And so I've worked with him and I actually have invited him up to Texas A&M to be part of our pandemic summit and talk about Ebola and gorillas with one of our student simulation events. 
so just keeping those relationships so yeah so from from the baltimore zoo i dabbled in the corporate world a little bit i worked at procter and gamble and was a research chemist making cosmetics but i did that for three years so it was really interesting to learn about the corporate world and i'd gone on a trip to south africa and i'd always wanted to go to peace corps but i'd had a boyfriend that i was in love with so i'd put it off and then you know we broke up i was like I was 27. I felt so old. I was like, ah, oh, this is the time. I've got to go to the Peace Corps now or I'll be too old. And so I joined the Peace Corps and that really changed the direction of my life. Uh-huh. So what happened after the Peace Corps? The Peace Corps, I got to work in Northern Ghana, work with some of the most amazing people. One of my favorite um, people I've ever met, his name is Gruna. Na means chief. So he was chief of Grungu. He's one of the reasons our project was really successful. And there were two other chiefs, Wachao Na and Tokali Na. And I learned a lot about leadership. Interesting. I learned a lot about gender and how gender is important for international developments. I also have really good connections there with the Nature Conservation Research Center, who I continue to work with today. We'd love to put together a, uh, a field station so we can take students to Ghana as well. Talk a little bit more about the gender piece that you just mentioned. Why is gender so important? What did you learn well, I, about you know, gender? I've always been a strong, I call myself a feminist. And when I say feminist, I just think that, you know, there's, there should be equity for females and males. And you have a totally different perspective of that growing up in the U.S. than you do in another country. And I did not recognize how different it was till I lived in that community. So I lived in northern Ghana. It's a, it's a Muslim area. Thinking about what cultural norms are. I was questioned, and I'm often questioned on the continent, whether I'm a man or a woman. No, I, I'll tell you this story. So when I first got to the village, I met with another chief, and uh, you know, I shook his hand, and I was so excited. I'm in Peace Corps. This is my village that I'm going to be working in. And I shook his hand, and I'm like, oh, chief, I'm so happy to be here. And he said, mm, they sent us a woman. And I was like, mm, yes? <laughs> and he said... We know in the Western world, you all think men and women are equal. But here in Africa, we know that men are better than women. You know, and this was 20 years ago. This is a very older man in his own set of ways. But that was my welcome to the village. Then the next day, I have my binoculars. So I'm walking through the village. And these women came up to me and they said, Pogala Bidaula, which in the local language means, are you a man or a woman? And I was like, what? So I, I took my ponytail, I'm like, and I shook it, and I'm like, I'm a woman, Pogala. And they were like, they lifted their shirts, and they shook their breasts at me, and they were like, Pogala. And I'm like, oh, that's how to show you I'm a woman. Yes, I'm a Pogala. So then the women were like, yay, they clapped their hands, and then they would talk to me. Do you think they perceived you to be a person of power and that that was the reason why exactly every cultural norm that makes you a man or a woman I was violating I rode a bicycle I wore trousers I didn't have a baby strap to me I couldn't carry anything on my head you know I wasn't married my father wasn't with me I lived in a house by myself and and then I would I would drink a little bit of uh, appetite with the chief at night <laughs> There was a question I wanted to go back to as you were talking about how you got here. And it's the role of competitive sports. But I'm thinking about you as a young girl growing up in Colorado on the farm, 
Like what gave you the chutzpah or the confidence or the courage or all of the above to jump out there and go to a new place? And I mean, this is, that's pretty, that's pretty bold. Well, I was incredibly shy when I was younger and I was always the, you know, the tall one, you know, I was the giraffe. When pictures were taken, I always was at the back, you know, the tallest one in the back. Uh, so sports made me feel better about being big. Did you always play sports as yeah. a kid? Yeah. I wanted to be a boy for a while because they got to do all the cool sports. But then I had a husband-wife coaching team that gave me so much confidence in myself. Uh, Mike Switzer and Kathy Switzer, Mike was my JV volleyball coach. So we moved off the farm into town. My, my dad had an accident. We were having financial issues. So we moved into town and I was really scared to be in the giant city of Greeley, right? Which is about the size of College Station. <laughs> you know, maybe 60,000 people live there, but it was giant to me and I was really scared. And he, Mike Switzer, he invited me to try out for the volleyball team. And I was like, oh, I don't want to play volleyball. That's like tough sports. And then he was like, no, you should play volleyball. So he took a chance on me and he put me on the team. And then I got to hit the ball really hard. <laughs> And that was really fun. So volleyball wasn't just a girl sport anymore. It was a fun, aggressive sport that I was tall and kind of good at. And then I went to high school when it was a little scary in high school. And his wife was Kathy, Kathy Switzer, a fantastic volleyball coach and herself a true pioneer. She was one of the first women to get a collegiate athletic scholarship. And so she also took a gamble on me and put me on the team and made me feel good. They called my nickname was Shira, Princess of Power, on my <laughs> high school volleyball team. So it was okay that I was big. It was okay that I was strong. And so they were the ones that really made me feel more confident in myself mm -hmm. and see what I thought was made, what made me weird. They made me feel that that was a good thing. And so... They just kept pushing me and I had this wanderlust and they gave me the confidence with being my coaches in this sport to keep pushing me a little bit more. Bouncing back a bit to your work here. Yeah. What are the biggest obstacles that you face in doing this work? What are the things that are your biggest frustration? Me having enough time. <laughs> the old way of rewards within a university were these channels of this is the discipline you're in and you need to publish in this discipline all your work needs to be in this discipline interdisciplinary work was not rewarded and we're not there yet mm -hmm. but there is a movement across universities so this is this. pretty unusual the interdisciplinary approach is still somewhat unusual or no i think it's I think the younger people are on board. It's that the older structures and the reward structures are not quite there yet. For sure, there's a recognition that interdisciplinary, you know, it's one of these cyclical things. Right. You, you expand and contract, expand and contract. And right, we need to have experts in particular subjects. But understanding the language of another discipline is incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. So in one of my courses, that's what I try and do. I try and bring my scientist students to with my policy students. 
so they understand. Why, why do scientists talk like that? Why do you suggest? Why do you give all this fuzzy stuff? We want black or white, yes or no. This is the answer, that's the wrong answer. And scientists are like, well, we don't really know. We need more research, more funding. Oh, that's so frustrating to hear as a policymaker. But try to get them to understand the motivation behind why they're doing what they're doing and understand the language and why they use that language. So if you had a crystal ball or maybe a magic lamp and you could really break down those silos, what does it take to do that? I mean, you, you guys are doing it here at the Bush School to a certain degree, but what really needs to happen across academia in order to really change the way that these different disciplines work together? to encourage more innovation, because it's not just the work in your space, even though it's incredibly important, but, but really it seems like across the board. Right. Our students are hungry for it. And I'm, I'm, at, the, you know, I'm at the middle stage, and I want to do it. Yeah, students are probably not the problem. Not at all. Not at all. So I did a little flyer to the science departments, and I said, want a little policy in your science? And I got a huge response from that. Uh, and I, I have students coming to talk to me about it all the time. But if you want to be successful in your career and you want to go into academics, there's starting to be ways to knock down those silos. Uh, the School of Innovation here at Texas A&M, that's why they're trying to do that with that grant that they gave me to do this boom and bust economics of Ebola. So we're trying. Other universities are trying and finding ways. But I think it's about the reward structure and understanding if you publish your work in an engineering journal that should count just like if you did it in ecology journal right and then having these relationships are good things I, i've had a lot of success reaching out to colleagues here at texas a&m a lot of people are interested but if they're young faculty and their tenure track it's a lot harder to involve them because they understand if they're going to get tenure, they have to stay very focused. Only the ones that are a little bit rogue and don't care if they're tenure track or not tend to reach out. Yeah. It's the opposite of everything we know about problem solving. Yeah. And inter interdisciplinary teams. Right. Right. Interesting. Leslie, if you could go back and give your young 20-ish year old self, a single piece of advice, a life hack, maybe it's a mantra you live by, what would that be? I've been thinking about this a lot just because of other students that have come to ask me these kind of questions. And for me, I think that I didn't have enough confidence. Like my confidence really slowly was there. And a lot of it I needed from outside forces, people to say to me, oh yeah, Hey, it's great that you're six foot tall. Oh, it's great that you know you can you can bench press you know this much or leg press more than all these guys. That's a good thing. I wish I would have been just more confident in myself and not needing that external validation. And I think I've gotten to that over time. But it's one thing I definitely uh, noticed between um, men and women. In, when I was growing up, I think men had it a lot more than women or boys and girls actually. Now, I, I was speaking with another high school group, and these, I said that to them, and they were like, well, I don't have any problem at all with confidence. I'll do anything I want. <laughs> and I think that's great. But for me, it was, it was about confidence and, and understanding that it's okay to, to fail. For me, it was very hard for me not to be 
great at everything. And if I wasn't great, then I felt really bad about myself. And then, then the confidence thing would crush me again. What do you say to your students? If you, if you have a student who you recognize in class, who maybe is struggling with her confidence, what do you do? How do you sort of help bolster her? I try and push them out of their bubble. Going to Peace Corps, traveling the world by yourself, understanding that you can. I go to the Congo by myself. All these people are like, don't you have like security detail? No, I go by myself. And you learn to talk to people. You learn to navigate. That's one of the great ways of getting your confidence. Uh, And so that's what I try and get my students to do. Go out there. Go in the field. Get out of your comfort zone push your own self don't rely on others to push yourself you push yourself be self-motivated get out of your bubble you know all those things that can really build that inner self-confidence so you don't necessarily need to say if someone says you didn't do it perfect you're not like oh i didn't do it perfect you're like ah all right i could have done this better but i don't need that person's validation that's great leslie thank you so much thank you really appreciate it it's great to be here with you To learn more about Dr. Leslie Rule, check out the show notes for today's episode, or you can follow me on Instagram at She Said, She Said Podcast with Laura Cox Kaplan. You can also visit www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There I'll include links to Leslie's bio and some photos, as I mentioned before, from today's visit. And remember, here at She Said, She Said, you will always find insight inspiration, and women like Leslie who are having a positive impact on the world and all these students every single day. Thank you so much for listening.